Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you after being in the Bay Area last week doing a wedding. I love doing weddings. They always make me kind of nervous, though, because if you mess up, it's remembered forever. Um, so, but it went okay. I didn't, I didn't blow anything, so I was really, really excited to, to do that. And, um, but it was, uh, it was good. Uh, it, it is good to be back with you. I missed you very much, and I love being a pastor at this church. I do want to extend a special welcome to those who are here for the very first time visiting with us. You could choose to be anywhere, but you're here, and we count that as a real privilege to minister to you in any way we can. Please do not hesitate to ask me or one of the elders questions about us, our church, uh, where we're headed as a church, who we are. We would love to meet with you, and, and if you're looking for a church home, it doesn't have to be here, but we would really like it to be, and we really believe that that uh, uh, that we are a part of something that Christ is going to use to to change not only your lives but also be a part of changing the world. Also, so we want you to be a part of our body, as you all know, and you could tell by Rich's prayer, we are. Uh, mindful of the fact that it is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to you here who are, who are dads among us, so blessings to you. Uh, special prayers go to you for uh, strength and wisdom you need to be dads. Um, also, though, I, I know that on days like this, sometimes Father's Day isn't always the most cheerful day, maybe because your dad wasn't the kind of dad that you hoped he would be, and so uh, I, I understand what that's like. So maybe if today is not as sweet for you as it is for others, I just want you to know that, that the truth of the matter is, is that God is the father that you never had. He is the one to whom you can look to provide the comfort and care and love that you wished your earthly father would have provided. He is that for you. So I encourage you to to seek after him and, and to look to Christ because who God the Father is is most clearly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So be encouraged by that. Um it's it's a good day to gather. I very much feel like I need uh grace today. Every day I need grace and and I want to, uh, if you'll permit me, pray one more time and ask for God's blessing and strength as I preach. Oh Lord, we come to you as empty people, people who have nothing to boast of. If we really think about it, nothing to boast of. We, all we have to do is look at Isaiah chapter 6 and see who you are and know that we have nothing that we can lay claim to that should bring us any fame at all. We are a people of unclean lips and we live amongst a people of unclean lips. Ask, O Lord, for your word, that you would strengthen me to proclaim it, Christ, that you would meet with us in this hour together. Meet with us, minister to us, satisfy our deepest longings, use your word to transform us. I need you, Lord, I am just a branch. I'm just a human, I'm just a man, I'm just a man of great blunders, and these are a people, O Lord, of great weakness, and so we need you more than anything else. Minister now, strengthen us by your word, always and only for your glory. Amen. I want to begin with a question. Maybe it's a question you've never dared to ask before, but the question is this. Have you ever considered the role of holiness and obedience in the Christian life? Have you ever considered that? I mean, I know you know you're supposed to obey, but have you ever considered why you're supposed to obey? I mean, why do we do that? I mean, what really is the point of holiness? See, the question is, does my personal holiness actually accomplish anything in the grand scheme 
of eternity? Does this really change anything? Like seriously, I am one of eight billion people on the planet. I am one of trillions that have existed throughout history in the scheme of eternity. Is my own personal holiness and sanctification really that big of a deal? Because if we're being honest, doesn't pursuing holiness sometimes feel like Santa Claus is coming to town? Just be good for goodness sake. Better be good because that's what Christians do. Is that what this is? Just nice, ethical people with good morals? See, what I'm asking is, is there a cosmic purpose to our obedience? Is there eternal significance in our holiness? Because if it doesn't earn our way to heaven, and it most certainly does not do that, what good then will our holiness be once we get to heaven? Do you see? What I'm asking is, is there really a point to pursuing holiness in the scheme of eternity? And guess what? There's an answer to that question. And the answer is a resounding and universe-splitting yes. As a matter of fact, holiness does matter. Personal pursuit of holiness does have cosmic significance. It really does matter how you do it and why you do it. And this morning, Christ answers both of those questions. Why you be holy and how you can be holy. Why change matters and how you can be changed. Why sanctification is a really big deal and how you can be sanctified. Christ answers both of those questions And the answer comes in the form of a text you've read probably a thousand times in your life. You read it, you know it, you probably even have it memorized. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. That text right there, that's the answer. That is the solution to every single struggle you could possibly face in the Christian life. You, a branch abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ. That is the answer and the solution to everything. And you might be thinking, okay, well, I'll take your word for it, Jared, but what does that even mean? To which I reply, not so fast. We'll get there. But I just want you to know that this morning very well could be, and I very much hope that it is, a watershed moment in your lives. I've prayed for you this morning that this would be a, a fork in the road for you. That because of what you see in the text, it would be so compelling and so convincing that your lives would never be the same again. That this morning would be one of those breakthrough mornings for you as you learn the secret to put to death those nagging, hard-to-reach sins that never seem to take no for an answer. I have prayed for you that you would be staggered by the reality that authentic life change and transformation is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. Because even though there was no sign over the door when you came in here this morning, if there was one, I would have wanted it to say there is hope for you. And the reason for that is because the kind of Savior to whom you belong, and the kind of Savior to whom you belong is one that didn't just cancel guilt for the sins of the past, 
but also he provides everything you need to live a life of cosmic significance. So brace yourselves for the deepest answer the Bible provides for why you must be holy and how you can be holy. I couldn't think of any better way to encourage dads, and in parentheses, everybody else, than to see the vine, Jesus Christ. John 15 is our destination. Maybe you have notes, maybe you don't. Here's where we're headed. I want you to see from our text three realities. Three realities of the Christian life with which you must come to grips if you want a life that brings glory to the Father. So we're going three realities of the Christian life with which you must come to grips if you want a life that brings glory to the Father. And so reality number one, you must come to grips with the actual situation of the Christian life. If you want a life that brings glory to the Father, you must come to grips with the actual situation of the Christian life. And here's the thing about John 15, where we're at. Here's the thing. What makes it so significant is that it comes between chapters 13 and 16, (laughs) which you know is all one scene. In fact, what it is, is um, it is Christ's last meal with his disciples in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem, just hours before Christ is betrayed and arrested and tortured and crucified and publicly executed. And yet even with the weight of eternity crushing his soul like an avalanche, Christ is intensely concerned to explain to his disciples and to you not just how to keep a few rules, but how to live lives that put the Father on display. In other words, holiness, obedience, authentic life change and transformation because in the scheme of eternity, those things matter. They really, really matter. And to explain how to be holy, Christ doesn't draw a diagram. He doesn't enter calculations into a computer. He doesn't write up formulas with complex equations and fractions. No, to explain how to be holy, he uses a metaphor. In fact, it's a gardening metaphor, a horticultural, agricultural gardening metaphor complete with vine and branches and fruit and a master gardener overseeing the entire operation. Metaphor begins, of course, in verse one. Look what Christ says. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And there it is again. One of those I am statements. You remember the other ones, don't you? There were seven before this and this is the last. I am the Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here I am the true vine, which means he's using a metaphor And metaphors stand for something. And the metaphor that Christ uses explains and illustrates what the Christian life is and how the Christian life works. And in verses one through three, that's exactly what Christ explains. In fact, he gives four components of the Christian life that you've got to understand. He gives four components. You gotta get this. Number one, there is a vine. Number two, there are, there is a vine dresser or master gardener. 
Number three, there are two kinds of branches, some of which bear fruit and some that don't. And number four, there is this thing called fruit. And like any metaphor, each one of those things stand for something. And I'm just telling you right now that if you get these things, you will get the Christian life. So number one, there is a vine. There is a vine, and it's none other than Jesus Christ himself. He himself is the vine. In fact, in verse one, he calls himself the true vine, doesn't he? And you just need to know this, this vine metaphor, this is not the first time we've seen this in the Bible. This is not original with Christ. He didn't make this up. No, this metaphor has history. You know, it has baggage. It is loaded with all sorts of connotations and most of them being really, really negative connotations. The reason for that is because this metaphor was used nine times in the Old Testament and every single time it refers to Israel and it's never a good thing. Every time this metaphor is used of Israel, it describes a weak, diseased vine that cannot bear fruit and the only thing it's good for is to be destroyed. It's a sad metaphor for their failure to be and do all that God commanded them to be and do. So do you see, a, a vine in scripture has only negative connotations until, that is, Jesus Christ emerges on the scene and says, I am the true vine. So it's clear, isn't it? When he says, I am the true vine, what he means is, I have come to be and do what Israel could never be and do on their own. And yet, this isn't just for Israel, is it? It's not, because when he calls himself the true vine, what he's doing is he is explaining his role in the Christian life. And his role in the Christian life is as the vine, get this now, he provides all that you need to do what God commands. That's what it means to be the vine, that he is the life-giving, never-ending, self-sustaining vine of inexhaustible power that richly supplies you with everything that you need. Do you hear this? I mean, do you feel the implications of this? You see, as God, he both commands what he will, and yet he provides you the power to do what he commands. He is both ruler and supplier. He is both commander and provider. Do you feel the implications of this? It doesn't matter what you're going through right now. There is hope for you. You can be changed you can be transformed. You can be holy. In fact, the vine doesn't demand you to do anything that he has not already provided the power to obey. He is the vine. Number two, there's not only a vine, there's also a vine dresser or master gardener. Look again at verse one. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Do you see that? Christ is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser, a.k.a. master gardener. And do you know what that means? I mean, you know what gardeners are like, don't you? They care about their gardens, don't they? 
They love their gardens and they are intensely concerned about the health of their gardens. There they are on their hands and knees laboring in the sun to give their gardens what is best for them. No one cares more about the garden of the gardener than the gardener himself. You see, that is the father's role in your life. He is intensely concerned. No, he is passionate about your growth. In fact, no one cares more and no one works harder for your spiritual growth than God the Father. See, the Father is not watching you from afar with binoculars, all ticked off that you, the branches, don't bear fruit the way he'd like you to. No, there he is on his hands and knees, as it were, hovering over you, the branches, intensely concerned to give you exactly what you need. And speaking of branches, that brings us to component number three. Look at verse two. He says, every branch in me not bearing fruit, he, the Father, takes it away. And everything which is bearing fruit, the Father prunes it in order that it should bear more fruit. Do you see that? Not only is there a vine, not only is there a vine dresser, but there are also branches. In fact, there are two kinds of branches that Christ describes, some of which bear fruit and some that don't. And I think the metaphor makes it clear, doesn't it, exactly what the branches represent, rather who they represent? The branches are people. People, real people with, with real souls, with real lives who, who live forever. The, the branches are you. Because Christ says, does he not, in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches are people. And so there are two kinds of people in the world, those that bear fruit and those that don't. And look what Christ says happens to the branches that don't bear fruit. Look very carefully at verse 2. Christ says, every branch in me not bearing fruit, what does the Father do? He takes it away. Now we're about to see what Christ means by fruit here. But I want you to notice again that branches that don't bear fruit are removed by the Father. You want to take a stab at what that means? This is a weighty thing. Because you don't have to have a green thumb or a PhD in gardening to know that branches that don't bear fruit have something wrong going on. I mean, sure, they may look green. They may give the appearance of life at a distance, but because they don't bear fruit, they're not actually connected to the vine. They don't actually have life, at least not in the same way that branch, branches that bear fruit do. And so anyone with the most basic horticultural knowledge knows that branches that don't bear fruit are detrimental to the vine and they need to be removed. In other words, you take a pair of garden shears and you cut them off, which is exactly what Christ means when he says the Father takes away the fruitless branches. And so can you guess what kind of people are they that don't bear fruit? The text is clear, isn't it? fruitless branches, get this now, are unbelievers. Non-Christians. Those without salvation. Those who have no life in their soul and you know they have no life because there is no fruit. 
And we know that's who he means because in verse six, when Christ talks about the fruitless branches, he says that they are rejected, withered, gathered, thrown into a furnace and burned. That is less than encouraging. That is not how people who belong to Christ are ever described in scripture. And ultimately what he means is even their eternal destruction in hell itself, which tells us this metaphor Small town, rural, and country cute, though it may be, it deals with matters of infinite significance. And yet there are branches that do bear fruit, and that's a good thing. Heck, that's, that's a great thing. Because now we're talking about people who are saved. We're talking about people attached to the vine. We're talking about people who, who are alive. Branches that bear fruit are simply another way of describing people who have been born again and who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. And yet what that means is that the question that I have to ask you at this moment is, what kind of branch are you? Are you a born again branch that brings glory to the Father? Or are you a barren branch that has no life in your soul? And I know that's a loaded question. And, and, and I ask that not because I want to make you unnecessarily fearful or introspective, but you at least have to pose the question, is there any true life in your soul? Are you truly connected to the vine or are you not? How would you know? And the answer is found in component number four. Component number four, because in the Christian life, there's a vine there's a gardener, there are branches, and not only that, but there is also fruit. Do you know what Christ means by fruit? You see, another word that we have for fruit is produce, that which is produced, right? I mean, the metaphor is brilliant, isn't it? It's brilliant. Because, because when there's fruit growing on a tree, it is A, obvious and undeniable. There are either apples on the tree or there are not. B, fruit on the tree is evidence that the tree is alive and healthy and growing. And C, fruit that grows on healthy trees is consistent. And if cultivated well, it actually increases over time. And so you see what Christ means by fruit, don't you? Fruit is evidence. It is the highly imperfect but undeniable evidence that something is there, that there's life in your soul, that, that you have been truly regenerated and redeemed and rescued by Jesus Christ. Fruit is the irrefutable proof of the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ in our lives. That is fruit. And yet I know, I know exactly what you're thinking. If fruit is the deal breaker that displays whether I am a true believer or a make-believer, and it is, then what kind of fruit in my life should I be looking for? I mean, what, what does this actually look like in real time, in the, in the grime and trenches of life? What does this look like? Put it this way, for what kinds of evidence in my life should I be looking that proves that I am really in the vine? That's the question. And guess what? The Apostle Paul gave us a list. 
Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you remember? I, I believe with this text, with John 15, in his mind, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, that is evidence. The kinds of evidence about which Christ speaks. The only question is, do you see any of that happening in your life? And again, I know what you're thinking because I feel the exact same way. Sometimes the fruit we bear in our lives is a little wormy and bruised. Sometimes the fruit in our lives is contaminated by the pesticides of pride and sinful motives. Sometimes the fruit in our lives is a little more sporadic and spotty than we'd prefer, but nevertheless, nevertheless, if you are really in the vine, Jesus Christ, there has got to be something. And again, let's be absolutely clear. We need to be really clear about this. It's not that we bear fruit as an attempt to earn our salvation. It's that we bear fruit that we are as evidence that we already have salvation. Do you hear the difference? And so I'd be a horrible pastor if I didn't ask you this question, and it's a real doozy. But do you or do you not see fruit in your lives? Do you see the kinds of slow and steady, gradually increasing evidence that you are connected to Jesus Christ, that you are in the vine, that you have salvation? What I'm asking you is what kind of branch are you exactly? One that bears fruit to the glory of the Father or a barren branch that has no life in your soul? And that's the first reality that you need to come to grips with in the Christian life. The situation of the Christian life, which is there is a vine, there is a vine dresser, there are branches, and there is fruit, which brings us to reality number two. Number two, you must come to grips with how the Christian life actually works. You must come to grips with how the Christian life actually works. If you want a life that brings glory to the Father, you need to know how this thing works because the thing about Christianity is that it spells great doom for those who pride themselves in being self-sufficient. I mean, nobody, nobody likes to be told what they do, especially not Americans, that we can't, we can't accomplish something if we just set our minds to it. And I have looked up the most popular self-help motivational slogans, and you know them, things like, where there's a will, there's a way. You are stronger than you think. If you can dream it, you can achieve it. Believe in yourself and you will be unstoppable. All you need to achieve is the power of the will. Yes, you can. Fake it till you make it. I can, I will. End of story. And sure, maybe those cheesy man-centered motivations are true when it comes to doing natural things, but the problem is Christianity ain't natural. It is profoundly supernatural. You see, contrary to what so many people think, Satan doesn't come whispering, believe in me. He comes whispering, believe in yourself. And yet the text is clear. In verse 5, what does Christ say at the end of verse 5? <laughs> Apart from me, you can do nothing. Which means when it comes to the Christian life, the self-help slogans are absolutely worthless. 
worthless. You have a will, but there's just no way. You are weaker than you think. You can dream it, but you still can't achieve it. Believe in yourself and you are only stoppable. Fake it all you want, but you will never make it. See? And the reason for that, the reason for that is because Christianity is not merely difficult. It is impossible. Christ, everything that Christ calls you to be and do requires supernatural power that you don't inherently possess. And if you think what I just said is wrong, then you don't get Christianity. And we see this, we see this in verses four and five. And yet, I want you to notice in verse three what Christ says to his disciples first. Look what he says. He says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, this verse seems kind of odd and out of place, right? Because Christ seems to break with the gardening metaphor, but I'll just tell you what he said here is really, really timely. Because he just talked to them about branches that do and do not bear fruit, about people who do and do not have salvation. And I believe what he's doing here is giving them the assurance that they really do have salvation, that they are in the vine. Because look how he describes them. Look at the text. He says, already you are clean. You are clean, he says. I mean, this is unbelievable news for you if you belong to Christ. If you belong to the vine, Jesus Christ, you are already clean, purified, disinfected by sovereign grace, no longer damaged goods before the God of the universe. You are clean, he says, which means if you are already clean and acceptable to God through faith in Christ, you should not and you must not try to make yourself clean and acceptable to God through your own achievements in Christ. That work is already done. I mean, yes, yes, you should radically pursue holiness and obedience. After you get saved... But radical holiness and obedience doesn't get you saved. It is only the evidence that you have been saved, you see? And yet pursuing radical holiness and obedience is exactly what Christ describes in verse four. Look what he says. He's about to explain what it looks like to live out your faith. Look at the text. He says, abide in me and I in you. Even as the branch is not able to bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And there it is. I am not even kidding. The secret to everything you have been waiting for. The secret to all life change. The secret to overcoming sin and temptation. The secret to having a life that brings glory to the Father, it's all there. In verses four and five, that word used four times in two verses, that little tiny word abide, that is literally the secret to the entirety of the Christian life. This is how it works. And and yet the question that inquiring minds want to know is, okay, well, if that's true that abiding in Christ is the secret to the entire operation, and it is, then what does that even mean? What does it mean, and, and how do you do it? That's the question. 
And believe it or not, the answer is actually really, really simple. You see, if Christ is like a vine that richly supplies the branches with everything that they need, and he is, and if we are like branches that desperately need the vine with absolute desperation, and we are, then that means that abiding in Christ is nothing less than moment by moment, second by second, desperation and dependence upon him to provide all that we need to do what he commands. I'll put it another way. To abide is continuous and conscientious, clinging to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity for all that he is and all that he accomplished. All abiding is, is you despairing in your worthless resources to live the Christian life and to cast yourself upon Christ for his endless ones. That is abiding. Because here's the thing, Christ doesn't just command that you obey him. He supplies everything that you need so that you can obey him. That's what it means to abide. And yet, and yet you're probably dying to know, aren't you? At least I hope you are. <laughs> if that's true, Jared, that abiding in Christ is continuous and conscientious, clinging to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity for all that he is and all that he accomplished, and it is, then how do I actually do that in real time? Because my, Jared, Jared my, my problem is not in understanding a definition. My problem is how to actually do that in the grime and trenches of life. And I totally get that. And believe it or not, in verse seven, Christ is going to explain, don't look there yet, let's leave, keep it a surprise. And verse seven is the answer. But I want you to notice something very carefully what Christ said in verse four. I want you to notice something very peculiar because he didn't just say, abide in me and then call it good. No, he added something of profound importance that you absolutely cannot miss. Look again at verse four. He said, abide in me and I in you. Do you see how clever Christ is? Abide in me and I in you. That, that is unbelievable language. What does he mean? He means when you abide in me, I am right there with you and I am producing in you everything that I demand of you. <laughs> I mean, you have to understand, the Christian life is not Christ shooting over transmissions of his power from another galaxy? No, in the Christian life, he is closer to you even than your own skin. He is in you, producing through you everything he requires of you. And this rings a familiar bell, doesn't it? I mean, Galatians 2.20, you remember what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Oh, my, oh my. 
One of the most profound mysteries there is. You in Christ and Christ in you. The only question is, Christian, do you abide in Jesus Christ? Do you abide in him? Which means I'm asking you, do you continuously and conscientiously cling to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity for all that he is and all that he accomplished? Stop putting all of your assurance in a date on the calendar in 1970, whatever, for the day that you asked Jesus into your heart. That does not make you a Christian any more than me wearing a Dallas Cowboys jersey makes me a member of the Dallas Cowboys. What is a Christian is one who continuously and conscientiously clings to Christ with white knuckled tenacity for all that he is and all that he accomplished. Do you feel this? Have you come to grips with the reality that all you are on your own is a spiritual cripple and a beggar of grace? Because I'll just tell you, if you want to grow, if you want to change, if you want a life that brings glory to the Father, and I know you do, this is exactly what it's going to take. And before we're done, Christ is going to show us how to abide. But we still have to ask the question, don't don't you feel it? Okay, why is it so necessary to abide? I mean, why do we have to do this? Which is kind of like asking, why is oxygen so necessary for the survival of the human race? And Christ gives an answer. Look at verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Why? Why? Because even as the branch is not able to bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding in Christ for you is as essential as oxygen is for the human race. Abiding in Christ, continuous, conscientious, clinging to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity is so necessary because the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Which is true, isn't it? Can branches be or do anything other than be weak and dependent upon the vine? Answer? Do branches have any of the internal components in themselves that allow them to operate independently of the vine? Answer? Is there anything in branches that allow them to be self-sustaining and self-sufficient? Answer? You see, that's why we are called branches. Because all we are on our own, apart from Christ, are fragile little sticks that only fulfill our purpose when we are fruit-bearing instruments attached to the vine. You will not grow. You will not change. You will not bear fruit. You will never put your pet sins to death without the vine because all you are is just a branch Don't be fooled. Every battle in the Christian life is literally won or lost on this issue right here. Every battle that you face. You see, adulteries only happen when somewhere along the way a husband and wife stopped clinging to the vine for dear life. The wild beasts of porn and masturbation ravage people's life 
only when they stop abiding in the vine. All drama and conflict between people happen because somewhere along the way, the husband or the wife or both, someone in the mix wasn't abiding in the vine. This is literally the deal breaker of the Christian life. But then I want you to notice in in verse five, Christ pulls it all together and a very provocative language describes how the Christian life operates. Look at verse five. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Stop right there. Again, the metaphor is ingenious, isn't it? Because do branches exist to, to be admired or appreciated? No, no, they only exist to depend and be fruit-bearing instruments of the vine. Branches were created for the sole purpose of needing the vine. That's when they fulfill their purpose. I mean, the point is, that is you. Everything that I am, Christ says, is what you were created to need forever. He, the vine, you, the branches. Let me talk about perfect compatibility. This is a match made in heaven here. And yet, verse five, look what he says. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who literally in the Greek text is abiding in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, who bears much fruit? Whose lives display authentic life change and transformation? Who overcomes the hard-to-reach sins that never seem to take no for an answer? Only those who abide. Only those who continuously and conscientiously cling to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity for all that he is and all that he accomplished. Because if we don't, if we don't do that, if we don't abide, look what Christ says at the end of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Literally, the Greek text says, apart from me, you are not able to do nothing. You are not able to do nothing. It's a double negative. It doesn't work in English, but it's great in Greek. And it's intensive and emphatic. And the point is unmistakable, isn't it? To succeed in the Christian life, you must master the virtue of desperation. To succeed in the Christian life, you must master the virtue of desperation. To come to grips with your absolute spiritual bankruptcy and poverty and your absolute spiritual destitution. Make no mistake, the path of discipleship and holiness is the path of poverty and weakness. And I know, I know none of us are particularly crazy about having our weaknesses exposed. But I'll just tell you, if dependence is the goal of the Christian life, and it is, then you need to know that your weakness is to your advantage. I'm going to say that again because you need to feel that. If dependence is the goal of the Christian life, and it is, then you need to know that your weakness is to your advantage. Why? Because when you see how weak you really are, 
you will despair in your worthless resources to live the Christian life and you will cast yourself upon Christ for his endless ones. And when you do that, then you will abide in Christ. And when you do that, your life will change. So Christian, the question is, do you abide in Christ? Not just did you make a profession of faith that you can mark on the calendar back in the day. I mean, do you right now as we speak continuously and conscientiously cling to Christ with white knuckled tenacity for all that he is and all that he accomplished? And I know that you want to know not just that you should abide, but you actually want to know how to abide, don't you? That's what I'm going to show you right now. Reality number three. Reality number three, if you want a life that brings glory to the Father, you must come to grips with how to abide and what's at stake when you do. You must come to grips with how to abide and what's at stake when you do. Because that's the million dollar question, isn't it? How do you do this abiding thing? And, and to the great rejoicing of us all, although it is supernatural, it is also profoundly practical. There's nothing scholarly about this, no, nothing, nothing heady or academic about this. It's very practical, very accessible, very attainable. And yet, and yet, before we look at the secret, look at Christ's very chilling words that he has in verse six for those who aren't attached to the vine. Everyone look at verse six. He says, if anyone should not abide in me, should not abide, he is like a branch which is cast out and is withered and they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now we need to be very clear about this just so you know. When Christ talks about those who don't abide, don't panic. He's not talking about authentic Christians who had a bad week. He's talking about people who never abide. He's talking about unsaved people. Those who maybe they have some sort of intellectual affirmation that Christianity is true, but they don't actually desire Christ. He's not beautiful to them. He's not glorious to them. He's not irresistible to them. They love sin. They love other things so much more. Christ is this bottom shelf priority. He is merely attached to a long list of things that compete to their, with their affections. They are unbelievers. And you know that's who he means by the verbs he uses to describe them. They are rejected. They are withered. They are gathered. They are thrown into a furnace and they are burned. That can only describe the future judgment of unbelievers at the end of the age. And footnote warning, here it comes. You are surrounded by people who are just like this. I love Texas. But there is an interesting cultural thing that we have here where people can use all the language of Christianity and yet their lives be fundamentally about the self. There is a cultural form of Christianity that's accepted here. And yet there are millions of people in this area spiritually dead. I want you to look them in the eyes. When you pull into your driveway and you see them, that's a soul, that's a branch. And you 
are the instrument to connect them to the vine. You hired me here to get under your skin. You're welcome. (laughs) But notice in verse 7, Christ finally reveals the secret of how to abide in him. Actually, no, let me say one more thing. Maybe there are even some of those in this room who aren't in the vine. And I just want you to know, I just want you to know that if you still have a pulse this morning, there is time for you. There is time for you. There is still time to turn from your sin and your self-reliance and by faith embrace Jesus Christ, who is the greatest treasure in the universe. And if you have not done that, I am praying right now that you would. But notice in verse 7, Christ finally reveals the secret of how to abide in him. And as you're about to see, it ain't rocket science. Look at the text. Here's how to abide in Christ. Verse 7. He says, if you should abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Did you see it? The secret to all authentic life change and transformation, it was there. And it comes in two parts. Number one, look very carefully. Look very carefully. Be good detectives here. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. See what he did there? Two other times he said, you abide in me, I abide in you. You abide in me, I abide in you. But here, but here he switched it, didn't he? He changed it. From I abide in you to my words abide in you. Do you see how significant that little tweak is? It's significant because, get this, Christ is explaining how we actually get access to the power to fight lust and to kill pride and to combat anger and defeat, to defeat anxiety and pursue purity and be humble and save marriages. He is explaining how it is that he personally supplies us with the power we need to do what he commands. And how does he do that? What did the text say? He does it through his word. He's talking about truth here. He's talking about scripture here. When he says my words abide in you, he means he's talking about the truth of holy scripture. Don't you see, to use his word as a synonym for himself is his way of saying the only way to access the invincible power to do what he commands is the power of holy scripture. See, that is how to abide in Christ. That's how he abides in us. us. It is through his word. It's not Christ and his word. It's not Christ or his word. It's Christ through his word, by his word, in his word. I mean, there is no higher place that he could have given to Holy Scripture. And the supreme importance that that Christ places upon Holy Scripture was driven home to me several years ago with a girl in the college ministry over which I was a pastor. Her uh, previous pastor at a different church uh, actually confiscated her Bible. He, He took her Bible away from her when she was struggling. 
Because according to his estimation, scripture was detrimental to her spiritual health because what she really needed was Jesus and not scripture. I'm going to be calm. (laughs) And I'm going to do my best to think well of that man. But well-intentioned though that little maneuver may have been, it was the worst possible and most unloving remedy in the universe. Because to cut yourself off from Scripture is to cut yourself off from Christ Himself. Truth is the jugular vein that courses with the very power that you need to do what Christ commands. And and let me make this even more practical for you. When Christ says that His Word must abide in you, can you see what He's describing? Can you see the kind of relationship to Holy Scripture that he is expecting you to have? When he he talks about his word abiding in you, he is talking about internalization, memorization, immersion, saturation, preoccupation with Holy Scripture. You get the idea? In other words, when Christ talks about his word abiding in you, he is talking about the ancient biblical art of meditation on scripture. And what is meditation? It's not a Buddhist thing. It is not just even reading your Bible. No, meditation is like observing the beauty of a sunset or savoring a meal or warming your hands by a fire as opposed to skimming a text message Meditation is intense, rigorous thinking about a text in Scripture where you savor the texture, you enjoy the seasoning, you cherish the flavor, reading it again and again and again until it grips you, until it becomes a part of you, until it's absorbed into you. You see, meditation is like a crockpot meal, a Rubik's Cube, and a crossword puzzle all at the same time. It is slow and steady, long and hard, thinking about a text where you turn it over and wrestle with it from every angle until you master it. Or should I say, until it masters you. And when you're done, you do it again with the next verse. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. The next verse and the next verse and the next verse. And you read the Bible that aggressively and that consistently consistently over time. And eventually you will be saturated and infused with biblical truth. Let me put it to you this way. Meditation on Scripture leads to saturation with Scripture which leads to transformation by Scripture. Meditation leads to saturation, which leads to transformation. You could take that home to the bank. That's guaranteed. That's theological science. That is a fact. You cannot help but read the Bible that long and be changed. The question is, do you read your Bible like that? Not because reading the Bible like that makes God happy with you, but because you reading the Bible like that makes you happy in God above all things. And when you are happy in God, mark my words, you will be holy. And then there's a second component to abiding in Christ, and I close with this. 
It's at the end of verse seven. Look at the text. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Unbelievable. I mean, do you see what he's talking about at the end of verse 7? Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. What does he mean? You know what he means. You know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about prayer, isn't he? Because bold, passionate, persistent prayer is part of the essence of what abiding in Christ is. See, to experience the kind of life change that brings glory to the Father and brings satisfaction to your souls, you need to be a people who pray. A people who always have the Bluetooth of prayer always in your souls, always begging the headquarters of heaven for exactly what you need. The word and prayer, the word and prayer, that's what abiding is. Do you see what I mean when I say that if this is abiding in Christ is deceptively simple? The Sunday school answer is still the answer. Don't, don't mock it just because it sounds familiar. No, no. How we abide in Christ and do and have the power to do what he commands is a soul full of truth and a mouth full of prayer. That is it. That is how it works. So here's the question. If you meditated on Scripture 10 minutes a day, just read the same text over and over and over with a pencil in your hand, writing down what you see, if you did that, and if you prayed your guts out 10 minutes a day, so it's 20 minutes of your day out of 24 hours, do you think your lives would change? Maybe the better question is, do you think your lives would ever be the same again? Because when you do that, then you are abiding in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, you bear much fruit. And when you bear much fruit, verse 8 says that you bring glory to the Father. And when you bring glory to the Father, that right there is a life of incalculable cosmic significance. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray for your precious flock this morning. I feel a little bit like Paul did in Galatians 4 when he says, I am in agony for you until Christ is formed in you. Oh, I pray for this precious people, Lord. They struggle. We all struggle. We are weak. And we need help. We need your help. Help us to abide in your Son, Father. Help us to abide in him. Help us to have continuous and conscientious clinging to him with white knuckle tenacity. We need your son just like we need oxygen. Give us hope, O oh Lord. Give us hope for change. I pray that we, that this morning, O oh Lord, that there be a different relationship that we all have with Holy Scripture. I pray that it would not be just some devotional item or some mandatory accessory of the Christian life, but I pray, O oh Lord, that it would be, that we would have a, a, a intravenous drip relationship with Holy Scripture. We want to bring glory to you, Father. We can't do that on our own. We need your help. So we look to you 
and ask you knowing that as the master gardener, you will give us all that we need. And it's the precious, matchless name of your son that we pray. Amen.